Welcome to the China Current with me, James Chow. Professor Peter Piot has used his life to bring science to the people. He's transformed the world and given us the chance to live and with purpose. He co-discovered Ebola in 1976, the year it first appeared in what was then Zaire, followed by research and leadership on HIV and AIDS. His book No Time to Lose documents this extraordinary journey. But it now has an update after Peter was infected with COVID-19 and continues to live with the longer-term consequences of a disease we're beginning to understand. On a personal note, he brought me into AIDS and global health, and more importantly, he has done the same for many more young people whose lives today are a testament to his. So it really is an honor for me to bring you this conversation with Peter Piot. I am Peter Piot, and I'm the director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and at the moment confined at home in London. Peter, thank you very much for your time. And I think what I would like to know first, and what the world would like to know first, is how are you? It's been a harrowing couple of months for you. You were in treatment. You came out of hospital, supposedly recovered, but you've spoken a lot about the aftershocks of this. How do you feel now? At the moment, I feel actually much, much better. It's the first time in three months actually that I,、uh, you know, I can breathe properly when I. Uh, go on the stairs. I I went jogging this morning. That's also new,、um, but it's been a, a, a really rough time, and particularly uh, after the uh, the very lonely seven nights in the hospital, where I was、uh, really very scared to uh, uh, end up in intensive care. Afterwards, I thought it was over, but then I developed these complications of uh, a uh, you know a reactive type of pneumonia because of the Um, hyperimmune response. You know, the body overreacts to the virus and causes a lot of problems in the lungs, and、uh, and that's far more、uh, difficult to、uh, to get over with. And it makes me think also that lots of people who suffer from COVID nineteen、um, will have chronic、um, mobility, chronic problems, health problems.、Uh, fortunately, it doesn't seem that that's my case, but some have.、Uh, you know. Kidney problems, some、uh, you know mental health and brain issues,、uh, heart problems. So it's not just like uh, uh, some kind of bad flu, or、uh, you know, one percent of people who die, and then often it's said, oh, and it's they're over seventy, like me,、uh, or have pre-existing conditions, as if we were not full citizens in society. I'm sure that you were taking the precautions that you needed to. Before, is there any picture now on how you became infected in the first place? Yeah, I thought a lot about it,、uh, particularly more recently.、Um, but I really can't see where and when.、Uh, it was at the time when、um, I mean the precautions were half-hearted. I must say, I didn't shake hands.、Uh, but it was before、uh, the UK went into lockdown.、Um, although at the London School of Hygiene, Tropical Medicine. Um, we closed the, the school and went working remotely before、uh, the government made it compulsory. So、uh, the days before I、uh, developed my illness, you know, when it, before it started,、um, I, I was already at home just with Heidi, my wife. So that makes me think that I probably only infected Heidi, my wife, but nobody else. But before, you know, as you know, I, I have a 
pretty active social life also as a director of the of the university and um you know uh, giving talks uh, ironically about COVID 19 and epidemics um you know with, with students um and uh, and had dinners every night so uh, it was clearly not enough to uh, in terms of precautions you've spoken and written very movingly about those seven days in hospital. And in fact, I think we emailed while you were on the way to the hospital from your house in London. When you look back at that time, what was that journey like to the hospital? And what do you recall from those first hours? After about 10 days of um, illness and fever, uh, you know, uh, splitting headache, uh, uh, exhaustion that became worse every day uh, and I had then uh, in the meantime um, you know a confirmation by a, a laboratory test that this was COVID-19 um, you know I decided to go to the hospital because I became confused um, and I had a hard time to even get out of bed which is not my type although on the day um, that I started the uh, you know, the, the illness, I, I worked, uh, you know, I even gave an interview with Christian Anampur on CNN. So I'm the kind of person who continues to work, but that was clearly a, a mistake. And so when it got really out of hand, I said, okay, we go to the emergency room. And, uh, and I tried to, uh, in a sense, uh, like by sending an email to you to send some uh, news to some friends. And uh, because I had no idea what I was going into, I said, uh, if this continues to deteriorate, I may end up in intensive care and uh, God knows what then happens because the mortality there is quite high. And I was with Heidi, my wife, and we were very worried. Um, and uh, it was also uh, after some initial exams and where they found that my uh, oxygen saturation, which is an indicator of how well does the blood you know, absorb the oxygen from the air from your lungs was very, very low. They put me immediately on oxygen support and uh, they found that I had bacterial pneumonia based on chest x-ray. And then I was, uh, you know, um, uh, put in a, an isolation room together with three men and uh, who all suffered from the same thing. And, uh, and that's where we then you know, for seven days, you're not allowed to have any visitors. You can't leave the room, and uh, uh, but it's oxygen that saved my life, and uh, um, and also for, of course, the fact that it could treat uh, bacterial pneumonia with antibiotics. I mean, you said that when you were in hospital, you were resigned to what the health workers there could do for you. You described yourself as being surrendered to your fate as well. At what point did you feel that you were moving between, as you've called it yourself, between that state of heaven and earth? Well, first of all, um, as soon as I entered the emergency room, I switched from being a doctor to become a patient. And um, I didn't try to second guess what the doctors would do and so on. And, and in any case, I was too exhausted, you know, it, it's one, if there's one thing that I remember from um, 
from this acute illness and later also and uh, what also my fellow patients you know remember is that you're completely exhausted it's like you're hit by a bus going you know out of bed going to the toilet just eating it's all too much um and so that was the uh, fundamental uh, switch um and it's like and then it takes a bit of a while you know to realize oh boy i'm here in total isolation and uh, the only people you see are the caregivers nurses who do a fantastic job um and i think some of them were as scared as i was because they're exposed to uh, people who are infectious um and um and so and my biggest concern was that i would end up on a ventilator because uh, in the meantime i was still following the medical literature i had my ipad with me uh, and of course uh, you know i i as a doctor you know uh, all the the worst case scenarios and uh, and so that was my uh, big concern but on the other hand i knew there was nothing i could do some people send me messages yes you're a strong person and you're fit and healthy and it's true i've never been uh, seriously ill in my whole life i said but there's nothing i can do what can i do this is not a matter of strong will or you know or being strong uh, your body is being taken over by this virus in every cell and you just hope that you know it's strong enough to to react but not overreact um because with overreaction that were what we call now a cytokine storm uh, that could also ca- uh, cause problems so you really uh, are you know um out of it's out of control your life is not under your control anymore and uh, i try to be zen in the sense that uh, also thinking of people who are worse off um in maybe in countries where there isn't decent medical care or who are in prison for life and so i said i'm not going to complain that i can't get out of here um i know why that is um so uh, i uh, during the hospitalization i i try to be as um you know um compliant with being a patient as possible well after we emailed while you were on the way to the hospital i thought about you so much over the days that followed and i thought so much not only about your career but how you've contributed to science and humanity in a way that very very few people have managed to achieve in a lifetime of course you co-discovered ebola as a young scientist back in 1976 and then you went on to become one of the world's foremost leaders in the fight against aids and you still are and then you became infected with a virus called covid-19 did you ever imagine that you yourself would one day succumb to a new virus in the year 2020 well perhaps you know after having um fought viruses for most of my adult life made their life miserable maybe i became overconfident that they couldn't get me Uh, because I've um, taken care of uh, patients with Ebola uh, at least in 76 I you know I I had really lots of uh, contacts with people with various infectious diseases so I must have been very very lucky and then I thought okay this is the revenge of the viruses and uh, uh, but it shows also that uh, how infectious 
as far as this, SARS-CoV-2 as it's called. Um, and uh, that um, it is possible to avoid it, I think. Uh, the good news is that now more and more countries are actually uh, quite successful in bringing down the number of new infections, but the virus is still here, it's still around. And uh, as long as there is one person on earth who is carrying this virus, uh, it's a risk for the rest. Because let's think through, what's the purpose in life of a virus? An existential question. And that is to find a host, a living being. It can be a plant for some viruses, animals, or us human beings. Because viruses need living beings in order to survive. And so they will always try to infect people. Let's talk about the legacy of that work and where new relevance comes in. If we think about Ebola, of course, we think about Africa. And today, unfortunately, when we think about Africa, we think about it being one of the epicenters of COVID-19. A couple of days ago, the World Health Organization confirmed well over 200,000 cases. And those are just the cases that we know of. Africa, a region that you've worked with richly, uh, a region with fragile health systems and devastating health burdens in some parts before COVID-19. Is it too late then to reverse the damage that's being wrecked there? I don't think it's ever too late. Um, but uh, uh, the problem in, in, in Africa and some other low-income countries is that their um, health systems they um, are, are very poorly developed, poorly equipped, um, and that also, um, as in other places in the world, people are um, living in high density, you know, open, uh, entities and so on. And but it's there. I, I already lost three people, three friends, um, due to COVID nineteen in Africa. One in South Africa and two in in Congo. I mean, that must be the tip of the iceberg because all three were professionals, colleagues, um, uh, you know, active in AIDS research uh, or in, uh, you know, Ebola work. And um, I'm very concerned what's going to happen. It's a bit of a miracle that uh, Africa has not yet experienced a, a major epidemic uh, because the, uh, the, the classic approaches to COVID-19 with so-called social distancing, um, you know, that's out of question when you are in a, uh, you know, in a township, as it's called in South Africa, or in a, you know, like a Kailiche in, in, in Cape Town, or a, uh, you know, a slum area like uh, Kibera in, in Nairobi, places where I've worked, um, you know, or in the big cities, it's very hard to do that. Um, and on the other hand, the lockdowns that we've seen in some countries uh, can be extremely damaging to people who live in cycles of 25, four hours survival. You know, they, they have money to do, uh, to feed the kids, the family today, maybe tomorrow, but not beyond that. So um, it is going to be extremely difficult to, to manage. On the other hand, I must say that some African countries have really stood up to the challenge, have, um, you know, um, installed measures that uh, in, in certainly in the West, uh, you know, countries have waited 
for too long, uh, like in Rwanda, there is no there are no cases. It, it been really very uh, early response. South Africa is also interestingly engaging uh, the community workers uh, that you know that have been active in uh, in HIV. Uh, so uh, there are uh, good examples, but will it be enough to uh, control it to to stop the wave that is coming up now? Um, I doubt it. And so it's a matter of um, um, reducing the harm, I think, at the moment. We've been hearing your various alerts going off on your phone and your computer, your laptop, which is a reminder that while you are sitting at home, you are busier than ever. You got back to work very early on after your discharge from hospital uh, as an advisor to Ursula von der Leyen. And of course, I'm sure you're advising many others. One of the areas that you're very concerned about is the area of vaccines, that it be made accessible to everybody. Um, But I'm wondering, what is the second line of defence? Is there a second line of defence if we don't develop an effective vaccine, if it's not necessarily manufactured, rolled out and made available to everyone? And Peter, you yourself have said this as well. It's not necessarily going to be acceptable to everybody. And if people choose to opt out, then the pandemic has a chance to live. As much as I believe that uh, a vaccine against COVID-19 is going to make a huge difference, I don't think it will be a silver bullet, a magic bullet. Uh, And why am I saying that? First of all, um, it's unlikely that the vaccine will be 100% protective. You never know, but uh, just take a vaccine against the flu, against influenza. In a good year, it protects about 60-70% of people and particularly those who are more vulnerable, and it certainly reduces um, uh, mortality and severe disease, so we need it. But uh, it's unlikely that this will be a vaccine that is certainly going to stop all transmission. And uh, so that's the first thing. So even with a vaccine, we will have to continue to uh, respect certain, certain rules. But the truth is also that we're only at the beginning of this epidemic. And the way I, I, I think of it, and, and that's probably inspired by uh, our collective experience in terms of HIV, is that from an epidemic, HIV has become endemic. It's there. And so we'll have to go to societies living with the COVID-19 and um, where there will be some risk, and particularly for those who are more vulnerable, like elderly people or those with the certain conditions like diabetes and so on. But to wipe it out, that's going to be a, a very, very hard act to, uh, you know, to, uh, to achieve. Um, because let's not forget there's only one uh, viral infection that has been eradicated, viral infection for humans, and that is smallpox. Even polio, despite billions and billions and a good vaccine, is still not uh, you know, wiped out. So we'll have to combine, um, you know, and again, that's coming from HIV, it will be combination prevention, hopefully a vaccine, but at the same time, um, we'll need to, um, you know, to be careful. And uh, I think the uh, wearing masks, as has been a tradition for, since particularly the Spanish flu over a hundred years ago, in like in Japan and some other East Asian countries, 
I think should become part of our culture and of our behavior. Um, some kind of uh, social distancing, maybe handshaking that uh, belongs to the past in, in Western societies, in other societies that's already a long time gone, uh, if it was ever there. Um, and uh, we'll have to be also be very alert to um, any uh, new cases of COVID-19 um, and then immediately uh, act where they are. So um, why am I saying that? At the moment, we talk about the pandemic, but what is a pandemic actually? A pandemic is a you know, multitude of outbreaks of epidemics here and there. And, um, and now that we, in many societies, at least in Asia and in, the, in, in, in Europe, we've been able to bring down the number of new infections, what will probably happen is that there will be outbreaks here and there. Look at what's going on in Beijing at the moment. Um, it's quite unavoidable, or what happened in Singapore uh, in the migrant uh, you know, workers' uh, populations. So what we need is good intelligence, in other words, knowing where is it starting again, and then immediately um, try to contain it there so that uh, we don't have to go for this current bulldozer approach where a whole country is uh, you know, locked down. Uh, that is also uh, has enormous negative consequences, look just at the economy and could uh, you know, uh, push people into poverty, um, prevent people from seeking health care for stroke, heart uh, uh, problems and so on, and, and cancer, and, and therefore also cause mortality. So we'll need to set up a quite um, sophisticated public health system that um, combined with, uh, you know, um, maybe with um, digital and information technology knows when is a, uh, an epidemic going. Because when you deal with infectious diseases with contagion, acting early is essential. That's why the title of my memoir is called, you know, is No Time to Lose. Because if you can prevent the early cases to, you know, uh, to transmit to others, then you actually prevent thousands, maybe millions of, of cases that could come afterwards. So that means that that's a, an investment from, you know, from governments, from society as a whole, combined with, you know, some kind of uh, discipline um, to, uh, to protect yourself and, and to protect others is going to require a massive uh, behavior change at all levels. You mentioned Beijing, where too many new confirmed cases have been reported uh, linked to a market, again, a wet market. Um, what would you do? Because you've advised the governments of China in the past. What would you advise them to do this time around? Well, I think it's uh, happened everywhere. You know, in, uh, Singapore had uh, migrant workers in the dormitories. Um, we'll, uh, in, in Korea, there, there was, it was around um, some nightclubs. Um, and, uh, and there will be more coming. Um, it could be a, a school, a university, it could be a, a company. We've seen in the, in the US around, um, you know, meat packeting and the slaughterhouses. Um, so what one should do is to really make sure that um, these um, 
outbreaks are contained. And how do you do that? First of all, try to identify as many people who are infected as possible. So massive testing around that, plus their contacts, put people in quarantine where necessary, and um, and, and keep a close eye on it. And uh, but not necessarily, uh, you know, shut down the whole the whole of Beijing or the whole of uh, you know of um, of China. And uh, a country like Vietnam also has some experience um, Mongolia by uh, kind of putting some neighborhoods in quarantine. Um, and I think that's probably where, unfortunately, we'll have to go into. Will that be acceptable in all societies? I'm not so sure, but it strikes me that um, one of the highest density, uh, uh, you know, cities in the world, Hong Kong, has been quite successful in uh, in containing, uh, you know, the spread of uh, of this virus, and 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 that's where we have to learn from, and. Uh, so, uh, but a, a good surveillance system, a good public health system uh, is going to be absolutely key and then acting really fast. Peter, I can't speak to you without speaking about the world. You are an architect of the world. Uh, you are of the world. Um, and I think you'll go down in history as one of the favorite sons of this world as well. Um, in closing, what do you think of the world today, a world in which we now have this global pandemic, a world in which we're struggling with mass unemployment, widening social inequities, travel bans, very limited physical movement, and on top of all that, misinformation, mistrust in our governments and institutions, and now a social uprising after the death of George Floyd, but not limited to him alone. Uh, it's hard to be optimistic in today's world. On the other hand, let's take a historic perspective. And then um, I, you know, I couldn't think of any period, long period uh, in history where globally the world was not in turmoil. There weren't conflicts. I mean, there's some exceptions regionally. Um, for example, in Europe, we've had now peace for 75 years unprecedented that's thanks to the european union many people forget that but that is you know never uh, happened before i'm from belgium and uh, we've been constantly in war every maybe 20 years and sometimes uh, you know more often um, we also are um, in a world where of course the overall uh, balance of power is shifting and the center of the universe is moving back to asia and when I say back in, in, uh, in Europe or in the US, people stare at me and because they don't know their history. This is how it used to be before, let's say, around the 18th century. Um, when you look at the world's, uh, uh, you know, economic outputs and so that was uh, what that was the reality. So we're uh, going into a, a major shift of power relations, but also um, the this epidemic is, of course, at least in modern history, unprecedented. We had the, the Spanish flu, which had some profound uh, implications for, uh, you know, in many countries, but many on the on the positive side in the sense that um, it gave rise to public health institutions, more research on infectious diseases, um, social security in some countries, um, but at the same time, uh, 
major parts of the world were also in turmoil. What is very new is, of course, the speed of information, the mobility, whatever you know we think of it or whether we like it or not, but we've become a global community. Um, you know, when you look at this um, normal mobility and suddenly borders are closed, that's not going to last um, because it will make us all much, much poorer. We can't afford it anymore. We're so interdependent. But with the, with the social media, the speed of information, um, some um, you know, of that is positive. It can uh, lead to faster uh, solving problems. And I think that's what we're seeing now, for example, um, with COVID-19, exchange of scientific information is really fantastic. You know, when you think that the virus was sequenced first uh, in China at the beginning, I think uh, January, maybe the 8th or the 9th of January was released and uh, up the whole world started working on it. And uh, the first vaccine development work started in already in January. I remember that SEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, on whose board I am, uh, during the World Economic Forum in Davos, that's the, the last week of, uh, uh, of January, we issued already contracts to develop a vaccine. So that's the positive side. On the negative side, it can exacerbate, um, you know, tensions, uh, you know, and that goes from uh, here in, in the UK, for example, there were quite some racist attacks against people of Chinese ethnic origin because they were accused of being at the origin of this epidemic. Um, we have fake news going around. Um, we, uh, you know, we also uh, tensions that could be resolved through dialogue are much harder to be solved because one, we've got a, you know, social media that uh, are often, you know, fed by the most extreme positions. But also, um, you know, when I think of myself, I spend my days now in front of a screen and I'm, you know, we're all going to become zombies in a sense that, uh, you know, you there is a big difference between a, um, you know, interacting through video screens and, uh, you know, face-to-face. -face. There's no doubt about that. And particularly to solve difficult issues. Um, and we'll see how it goes. But I think that we will come out of this in a, with a different world, but um, the economic shock and the poverty and the inequalities that it's going to uh, create and also mental health issues, uh, for example, uh, we are just at the beginning. And I think this will require also an unprecedented type of solidarity. And there we have much better instruments than, for example, during the Great Depression in the 30s, um, we, when we see how uh, governments in many, many countries are, uh, you know, are investing in uh, rescue packages, uh, not only for, for companies, but also for those who uh, lost their, uh, their employment. Uh, so the shock we should be able to, to absorb as long as it's not going to last too long. That's again why we need a vaccine and desperately. If there ever comes a day when we can do it safely, I can't wait to give you a huge hug, Peter, because we love you and we want you to get better because the world continues to need you. That's wonderful to see you, James, and hopefully very soon in person. Thank you so much. You can watch the full conversation with Peter Piot on thechinacurrent.com 
and on your preferred social media. Thank you.